This episode is sponsored by Pediatrics On Call, the new podcast from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Each week, hear the latest news on children's health with advice and tips for doctors and parents alike. Subscribe to Pediatrics On Call and visit aap.org slash on call. Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am joined tonight by our outstanding guest, Dr. Robert Sintor, to discuss sore throat, particularly in adolescence. We got to have high energy, Chris. We're starting off the night strong. Got it. We're we're here. Yeah, we've only tried this like two or three times. Here we go. Third time's a charm. Let's remind us about the show, Chris, because people don't know about it yet. It's still in its adolescent phase. (laughs) Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And today we are joined by our phenomenal producer, Becca, who is going to tell us a little bit about what we did today, Becca. So this evening we had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Robert Centaur. Robert M. Centaur, MD, MACP, is Professor Emeritus at UAB. He has studied pharyngitis for 40 years. He's a committed clinician educator and still does ward attending at the Birmingham VA Hospital. He has been active in organized internal medicine, Chair Emeritus, Board of Regents ACP, former President SGIM, amongst others. He started a blog in 2002, joined Twitter in 2011, and is now a dedicated podcaster. He hosts Annals on Call and has appeared on the Curbsiders and the Clinical Problem Solvers multiple times. Dr. Santor teaches us the real reason to treat strep throat, why the differential should include bacteria other than just group A strep, and why you should be worried with shortness of breath, neck swelling, and rigors. So without further ado, let's get to it. (laughs) All right, Dr. Santor, we are so happy to have you on the show. To be informal, especially since it's for the kids, do you mind if we call you Uncle Bob throughout the show? It seems like everybody calls me Uncle Bob now. I haven't been able to get my wife to do it, but just about everybody else. <laughs> Some of our the listeners who may have followed us over from the Curbsiders, do you, do you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and um, how you got associated with us to begin with? Yeah, so uh, my name is Bob Centaur. I'm a general internist. I'm actually Professor Emeritus. I'm an old man. I've been doing this for a long time. I graduated from medical school in 1975 from the Medical College of Virginia, renamed Virginia Commonwealth University, but I stick with the Medical College of Virginia. And I've been at the University of Alabama at Birmingham since 1993. Did a bunch of sore throat studies in my career. I've gotten to know Justin and the Chew Man with the Curbsiders, where I've done a couple of episodes with Curbsiders, and I also have my own podcast, The Annals on Call, and I spend a lot of time with clinical problem solvers. I'm really just a podcast junkie. <laughs> but you're, you actually have one of the longest-running medical blogs, too. Yeah, I started a blog in O2, which just goes to show what a head-of-the-curve nerd I am. It's cool. Yeah, uh, it, it wasn't cool, and then it was cool, and now it's sort of passe. 
I've been on Twitter for I think nine or ten years, uh, and so I mostly just tweet now. Uh, I tweet and podcast. That's that's about it. I avoid Instagram. I'm on Facebook, but I don't do anything on Facebook. Like a lot of former students and residents, just want to be my friend, and I'm friendly. I'll be friends with anyone. Now that now that the COVID quarantine's going on, have you thought about starting a TikTok page yet? No. <laughs> Younger than stated age, but I'm not that young. <laughs> I bet you you get Dr. Clockenfleck in the run for his money. Yeah, uh, he's doing well. Yeah, he, he's way too cool for me. So since you, you're not going to start a TikTok, why don't you tell us now what your favorite failure is and how did you learn from it? My renal fellowship. After residency, I signed up for a basic science renal fellowship where put little pipettes into the tubules of rat kidneys for a year. And I decided that that's not who I was. So I quit my renal fellowship. That turned out to be a really, really good move. That was pretty gutsy. I immediately got some ER jobs. And it turned out that my former chairman at MCV wanted me to come back and be a chief resident, hired me in the division of brand new general internal medicine. General internal medicine was very, very new in 1979. And so I got in on the ground floor of academic general internal medicine. So rather than be a nephrologist, I ended up having a very nice career in academic general internal medicine. I forgot that story, but I love it. And it actually, I'm reading a book now called Range, How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World by David Epstein. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's basically a response to the 10,000 hours argument where just dedicated practice is how you get expertise. And it really argues that it's more important to have a broader exposure and you pull from different fields, but also that the exploratory phase to find what you're really passionate about is very important. And maybe that was, maybe your renal fellowship was just part of that experimentation. I've also read that book and absolutely love the book and think that all physicians should read it. Do you have any other book picks? Yeah. Uh, if you're ever going to be in any kind of leadership position, which all physicians are, it's an old book. It's called First Break All the Rules. And it's about how you build teams and, and how to make sure that you don't have rotten apples on the team, how to treat people. It's just a beautifully done book based upon actual data from Gallup. Hmm. I don't know that one. Good pick. Let's get to some content. We're, uh, we're going to start with a case, do some experiential learning. And let's say that we're here at a Cashlet Pediatric Primary Care Clinic. And we're seeing patients. You walk into the clinic and you have your first seven-year-old patient, Farron. Farron's dad, Jitus, tells you that Farron began complaining yesterday of a sore throat. He's also been tired and reportedly had a fever last night to 102 degrees. So just getting us started, when you first start, when you are first starting to think about sore throat and acute pharyngitis. What is kind of, what are we thinking? What's kind of a broad differential? How do we approach these types of cases? Yes. Yeah, so I'm going to say right up front, I'm going to say it over and over again. Children are very different than adolescents. And anybody who's been a parent really understands that uh, deeply. Uh, and adolescents and young adults are going to be very different from what we talk about first. We'll talk about before adolescence. The first is what is acute pharyngitis? And you described it perfectly. It's been just a day or two, maybe three. Once you get up to a week, that's no longer acute pharyngitis because with or without treatment, especially in kids, almost everybody's better within three to five days. So that's, that's number one. So this is acute pharyngitis. Now we have to decide 
what is the likely cause of the acute pharyngitis. Now, disclaimer, my original research was in a walk-in emergency department with a lot of adolescents and young adults. We used to see them starting at about age 15 or 16. Most of the people in the original study were, were between 15 and 30. I never created a score that I thought would be used in pediatrics. McIsaac adopted it for pediatrics and put in an age criteria. And so you'd get an extra point because this is a seven-year-old. Now, every guideline that has been written agrees that we should not overtreat nor overtest children who have pharyngitis. So what most people forget about the Centaur score or the McIsaac uh, modification of the Centaur score is its real value in telling you who to reassure. That's the real value of the score. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take more history than he had a fever. Now, if, if they say he had a fever, he had a fever, and we're not going to argue about it. He doesn't have to have a fever in the morning. And in our original study, now admittedly in adolescents and young adults, the history of a fever was better than the actual temperature in the ER. Hmm. And so that taught me an important lesson, which was a difficult lesson to learn after my residency, is that patients really do know whether or not they had a fever. And I think parents know whether kids have fevers, and so I always trust them. Then I want to know, do they have a cough? And it's really cough and coryza, but do they have a cough? Do they have, because that's a viral symptom. Then I want to examine them, which I'm impressed that you can do. I have a hard enough time doing in adolescence. How you do it in a seven-year-old, I have no idea. But you ought to be able to look and see the tonsils and see if there's exudates. And I'm, I'm talking about significant pus on the tonsils and feel for anterior cervical adenopathy. Now, when we get to adolescence, posterior cervical adenopathy is gonna be much more important in helping us decide between viral and bacterial. But in our kids, if we have anterior cervical adenopathy, that's a sign that we probably uh, do, we have a higher probability of having a bacterial infection. And so to recap, these are the things that are making up the center criteria, right? So it's the cervical lymphadenopathy, the absence of cough, fever, and tonsillar exudates. And is this a test for group A strep or for bacterial pharyngitis? Or what are we actually testing for as opposed to ruling out other things on the differential? Yeah, in a seven-year-old, it's for group A strep because for the greatest majority of children, the only important bacteria is group A strep. This changes at adolescence, but in the seven-year-old, we're just worried about group A strep. And then we have to decide whether we think that group A strep is worth treating. Now, the big problem in this age group is the carrier rate. So if you just do a rapid test on everybody, including people who probably don't have an infection, you're going to be giving a lot of penicillin or cephalosporin to kids who really just are carriers of group A strep. So that's, that's why I say the importance is a low score uh, will obviate needing to give antibiotics or do a test. Now, many offices just test everybody as soon as they come in. Many urgent cares test them as soon as they walk in if they have a sore throat and charge for it. But all the guidelines, every, the one thing that everybody's clear about is if you have a score of uh, zero or one, you really do not need to do a test or 
give antibiotics. Then the debate becomes, if they have a higher score, is it worthwhile to give them antibiotics? Now, I sent you a copy of a very interesting study about international guidelines that uh, a doctor named, uh, whose last name is Mathis and colleagues wrote a number of years ago. There are Europeans who believe that we shouldn't even be giving antibiotics to anyone of this age group because the big reason we started giving antibiotics was to prevent acute rheumatic fever. And the rate of acute rheumatic fever in the westernized world, Western Europe and the U.S. is so low that they think that the, the use of antibiotics is worse than the risk of rheumatic fever. I, this is a, I think this is an amazing point, something very similar to the Things We Do For No Reason series. Um, the idea that this has been inertia where we have always treated for group-based strep to prevent complications such as acute rheumatic fever when the prevalence is so low and sanitation seems to be one of the biggest things preventing it, I think is a common misconception that I always had. So there are really five potential reasons for treating group-based strep. So let's, let's go over that because that's going to be true for the adolescents also. Beautiful. One is to prevent acute rheumatic fever. Number two is to decrease the probability of uh, peritonsillar abscess or other similar abscesses. Number three is to decrease spread in the household. So there's really good data that if your seven-year-old has it and you don't treat a seven-year-old, that at least 50% of the other people in the household are going to get group A strep. And so let's say they have three kids and the, and the index kid comes in, it might be worthwhile to treat that kid if, if you really think they have group A strep to prevent the other kids and the parents from getting it. The, the next one is to prevent death. Now, this is really rare, but every now and then you'll read a newspaper article about someone who dies of streptococcal shock syndrome from a group A strep pharyngitis. That's so unusual that you probably are just as much risk from the antibiotics. And the last reason to go ahead and give them antibiotics is because if they have strep, they can't go back to school for 24 hours until they have <laughs> antibiotics, and that's not very good for mom and dad. And the complication post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis is one of those complications that is not affected by treatment. And so we are not preventing post-strep glomerular nephritis through treatment. I feel that comes up on boards all the time, and it's always worth mentioning, and it's always a nice little pearl. Yeah, I, I actually looked up those data many years ago, and post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis is so rare that even when they had some randomized trials of giving penicillin, that it didn't seem to make any difference, or there weren't enough cases they could tell there's a difference. Mm. I forgot, <laughs> there's one other reason that people talk about that is going to be very important in adolescence, but is not in uh, pre-adolescence, and that is shortening of the duration of illness. Right. And I remember when my grandsons were young and they would get, because they're, they're 11 and 14 now, but when they were like six or seven, they'd get strep. They'd be sick for about 12 hours and they'd get a, a dose of penicillin. The next day they're running around like monkeys. They're usually running around like monkeys. <laughs> so uh, the, the duration is so short in kids that it's really hard to change the duration. And there's no good data that says that it, de it decreases it very much at all. And that's going to be very different when we get to adolescents and young adults. I want to rewind a little bit because um, we sort of, we jumped a lot of um, things in terms of diagnosis that I sort of want to go back to. I do want to go back to some, some, some more of the treatment because I do have a couple more questions about that. But, you know, so 
we have our, our kid that we're seeing seeing in, in clinic. You know, we're applying our center scores with our McIsaac modification. So uh, who who is McIsaac and why did he, and how did he come about with the decision? Do you know how he came up with the decision on how he chose this modification to your score? Yeah, are you guys friends? Are you rivals? Like, yeah. I, I've never met McIsaac. <laughs> he seems to have made me more popular, so that's fine. <laughs> I think that he just realized that the prevalence of group A strep in acute pharyngitis in the pre-adolescent age group is so much higher that he added a point. And of, not of interest to your pediatric listeners, but to your med-peds listeners, once you get past about 30, pharyngitis is very unusual. So people who have sore throats in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, you have to think about totally different things. And so I think that's how he did it. I think he tried to make it simpler in some ways, but I never proposed using it for kids. And that, that, was, that was his idea. So when, when you're developing the center criteria, were there other symptoms and um, things that you had considered putting into the score? And ha have you looked at some of the other ways in which we have evaluated pharyngitis now that you would either put into it or advocate using these other symptoms in terms of trying to evaluate um, strep pharyngitis? Yeah, that, that is such a good question. It turns out that if you look at the signs and symptoms of pharyngitis, they really break down into three groups. There's the febrile response, with more common to have a febrile response if you have a bacterial infection than if you don't have a bacterial infection. There's the inflammatory response, and that's the tonsillar exudates, the anterior cervical adenopathy, uh, severe difficulty swallowing. So if you're, if you're taking a history over the phone and you can't get them to look at the exudates, a way to do it in history, and we actually published this once, is the severity of difficulty swallowing. If someone's having difficulty swallowing their saliva, they probably have exudates. There's a very high correlation. Hmm. And then there's the viral symptoms, cough and coryza. What I did is I, I had like 286 patients, and we did a logistic regression. And so we kicked out things that were correlated but weren't as good predictors. Every time you look at the data, the single best predictor really is tonsillar exudates. That's the single best predictor of bacterial pharyngitis. You can get fooled in adolescence with infectious mono, but you can use combinations of these things. You can use proxies of these things, and it's probably going to work just about the same. There are a couple of these findings that maybe are more specific to pediatric populations. And there's a good article that we can post, but also talked about like the scarlatiniform rash in pediatrics being a a uh, high predictor of starlet fever and palatal petechiae, or someone always taught me that a a rash on the outside of the skin was an exanthem, but on the inside of the mouth is an enanthem. And so having a enanthem, a rash on the petechiae on the palate, also high likelihood ratio for strep pharyngitis. And I've seen that a few times where a kid comes in with a sandpaper rash, a sore throat, and a fever, you can have a pretty high index of suspicion for group A strep pharyngitis. So I, I was interviewing a friend of mine who was one of the originators of the uh, pneumonia port score, the pneumonia severity index. And he made a very important comment. This is just part of your decision-making. The score is a part of your decision-making. And then knowing the patient, knowing the family, finding other unusual findings like uh, palatal petechiae, 
just because you're using a score doesn't mean you don't take those other things into consideration. And so I think that's great. I mean, uh, all these little things and, and because pre-adolescents really are different. Let's say that we determine we have a patient that has fever, that has exudates, that has cervical lymphadenopathy, but maybe has a mild cough. We say they have a Centaur score of three, and we decide to do a rapid test in the clinic. Is that a good test? Can we feel pretty confident that that can rule in or rule out group A strep? So a positive test is very useful for knowing that they have group A strep in their throat which may or may not be an infection. It could be a carrier state. A negative test with a high pretest probability is not quite as good. And, and we published, uh, we had a couple of students on a scholarly activity who looked at all of the rapid tests and all the studies on rapid tests. And the specificity is only around 80, 85%. And part of that sampling error, part of that may be that the group A strip may be hiding inside the tonsil instead of on the exterior of the tonsil. So I'm very, very impressed with a positive test and a positive symptoms complex. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so insistent on not doing tests on people who don't have symptoms and signs, because you're going to have too many false positives. I think that makes sense for me anecdotally, especially on kids will often do the reflex uh, bacterial culture, which is an IDSA guideline recommendation, and we'll get a lot of negative rapid streps, but then the the culture does come back positive. And yeah, and and, and that's clear. Clearly, anyone who wants to try to treat strep, realizing by the time the culture comes back, the patient feels better, but you could treat them anyway, because we're trying to prevent rheumatic fever, which almost never occurs. Right. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about treatment. This is one of the the rare. Uh, diseases, infections where short course is not as good as long course. So when they've done studies of three days versus five or seven days, it doesn't work quite as well. Uh, and I'm not sure why that is. So I stick to seven days because that's been sort of a regular thing. I still love penicillin. And in this age group, ampicillin or amoxicillin is easier for the uh, patients to tolerate and they don't have to take it as often. You can actually, I think in the IDSA guidelines, you can give one dose of amoxicillin a day. And I think that's great. The cephalosporins, there are quite a few cephalosporins that are very, very good. If you can't give either of those in this age group, a macrolide is fine. It's not going to be fine when we get to uh, adolescents and young adults. But I prefer the penicillin, if at all possible, or the, or the cephalosporin. And for seven days. I often offer the shot if they want it. Uh, that's that's fine. Again, I don't treat that age group, and you have more experience. For adults, too. I, I, I was hospitalized. For, I haven't told you the story. I was, uh, I was hospitalized for group A strep, for strep pharyngitis, and had a creatinine of like 2.1. And uh, yeah, got the shot. <laughs> Bragging. <laughs> the question is, are penallergic patients, right? Are, are, are they penallergic? So I don't know about pediatrics. What if they're proven and, to be penallergic? In, in adult medicine... At least 90, maybe 95% of the people who say they're penallergic are not penallergic. So unless you know they've had anaphylaxis, it's kind of hard to say they're penallergic. I would still give a cephalosporin unless they had anaphylaxis. But in preadolescence, azithromycin works. It's not going to cover the other bacteria we're going to talk about uh, as well. But for group A strip, it works pretty well. It doesn't work perfectly, but they're getting better anyway, so it's okay. 
How about steroids? So I've had patients come in that have said the throat is so bad because of the inflammation. They're having difficulty swallowing. They are miserable. Can we empirically treat the symptoms with steroids? If you go to the emergency medicine literature, they'll say yes. When I talk to infectious disease specialists, this makes them nervous, makes me nervous because it might mask other things that I'm concerned about, especially uh, when we start talking about the adolescents. If you go to urgent care, they're very happy to give you uh, a dose of steroids. I, it, it bothers me, <laughs> but, but we don't have any great stuff. It does make people feel better a day faster, but it's stupid. I, I think those studies are with dexamethasone, right? Is that correct? I think, I think so. I think there's a Cochrane review, and we can put in the show notes that shows you yeah, a little bit improvement, but that the IDSA guidelines remain no steroids. Right. And while I don't agree with all of the IDSA guidelines, I agree with that. Nice. <laughs> we are sponsored by Pediatrics On Call, the new podcast from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Each week, hear the latest news on children's health with advice and tips for doctors and parents alike. Subscribe to Pediatrics On Call and visit aap.org slash on call. <laughs> Let's say that... Uh, Patient is now having five days of sore throat, six days of sore throat, and maybe we've started antibiotics for group A strep, but they don't seem to be getting better. If the symptoms persist or the patient's getting more sick, uh, what are other things that we should be looking out for? What are complications? What are, what are we thinking of? Yeah, so this is going to be really different in preadolescence from adolescence. But the, the number one thing you're thinking about is peritonsillar abscess. And you should be able to tell that on exam by, once again, examining the tonsils. If their symptoms have gotten worse and it's more difficult to swallow, they continue to have fevers. And then you have to start thinking about other things. People, it, it can, this can be a presentation of acute leukemia, not a sore throat. And so you, ha, you don't just give them antibiotics, but you have to really do a careful history and physical and think about what else could be causing this, because this is no longer acute pharyngitis. And I don't know the entire differential in preadolescence, but I have a pretty good idea of the entire differential once we get to the adolescent age group. So maybe y'all can chime in for other things. I, I, I have had cases presented to me that were acute leukemia that presented with sore throats. I think of abscesses, I think of peritonsillar abscess, or in children under the age of five, retropharyngeal abscesses. Right. Mastoiditis is something we talk about a lot, but also pretty rare. Acute otitis, sinusitis are common separative complications of the group A strep, but also very rare. In fact, we can put in the show notes that antibiotic treatment has a number needed to treat of close to 200 to reduce some of these complications. Do we want to ask about maybe tonsillectomy? Yeah, tonsillectomy. It's been controversial uh, since I was a medical student. It's still controversial. Fair. That's all I'm we, willing yep. to say. <laughs> we'll take it. There's some ENT guidelines that are somewhat helpful, but I think the bottom line that is not unless you have a lot of pharyngitis, right? If you very recurrent. So, do we want to move on to adolescence? I think let's move on to adolescence. Uh, the conversation well, can go on to adolescence. I, Children I'm glad we finally got there. Let's hit it. Yeah, let's hit it. I think kids, kids get older, they become adolescents. Yeah. Right? We'll, we'll Tarantino back to the beginning and say that Farron is actually 16 years old, or he's 18 years old. He's a, he's a true 
he is a severe adolescent. Rap, and, rapid, rapid growth. Rapid yeah, growth. rapid growth. Yeah. How does this change our differential? How are we approaching this? Help us out, Bob. Yeah, so our most recent sore throat study was done in a college health clinic, and that included patients between 18 and 26, mostly. The bacterial flora changes, and I don't know why, but it changes in adolescence. And now group A strep is not quite as important as it was. Group C, and remember, group C and group G are the same organism. We mostly see group C is a real cause of sporadic tonsillitis and can present with severe tonsillitis and peritonsillar abscess. And then the anaerobe Fusobacterium necrophorum, which is my most interesting bacteria right now, was the major cause of bacterial pharyngitis in the study that we did. If you take all of those, so now we're using the old-fashioned Centaur score, not the McIsaac uh, variation, 75% of the patients who had a score of four had one of those three bacteria. And about 40% of the ones with two or three had one of those bacteria. And then very small numbers of the zeros and ones. So the other thing that's really important to know um, is that separative complications peak in this age group, in the 15 to 30 age group. Uh, that's where you get the most peritonsillar abscesses, and that's where you get the dreaded Lemaire syndrome, which I'll get to in a minute. So if all we're doing is testing for group A strep, we're going to miss group C strep, and we're going to miss Fusobacterium. Now, we only have good data on treatment duration for group A strep. The study that I think is the best, because it was the really a well-done randomized control trial by Zwart in about 2000. He took people who had threes or fours. So in order to get in this study, you had to be an adolescent young adult and have a score of three or four. And he showed a two-day benefit in group A strep and a one-day benefit in group C strep. Now, that was before Fusobacterium was being considered as a cause of endemic pharyngitis. There are a number of studies now that show very clearly that patients in this age group do get Fusobacterium pharyngitis. We even have a microbiome study showing that Fusobacterium can overtake the microbiome. And the reason that Fusobacterium is so important is, number one, it's the most common cause of peritonsillar abscess in this age group, and it can cause Lemaire syndrome. And Lemaire syndrome is, if you're a pediatrician, and you're taking care of adolescents, this is what you have to be scared of. Because Lemaire syndrome is the extension of the pharyngitis into the internal jugular vein, creating a separative thrombophlebitis. And if you think about a separative thrombophlebitis in the internal jugular, it's going to break off pieces and you're going to get septic emboli. So this is like right-sided endocarditis on steroids and you get severe pulmonary emboli. And the problem is, unlike strep viridans or staph, Fusobacterium is really, really brutal. And so in, before antibiotics, when Lemire described this many, many years ago, in the, I think it's in the 30s, 90% of the patients who had this syndrome died. Today, it's less than 5%. But seven to 10 days in the ICU, post-traumatic stress disorder. It can go into the bones. 
It can go into the brain. There are brain abscesses. There's quite a, quite a bit of disability from that infection. So when you're seeing someone who is a three or four, has exudates, has fever, a lack of a cough, anterior adenopathy, the odds are that it's, that it's a bacterial infection. And so you have to give me a really good reason not to give them antibiotics. The zeros and ones, again, we should not test. We should not test. We should not treat with antibiotics. The twos, I think, is a clinical judgment. If one of the twos is really bad to exudates, I might consider giving antibiotics. But the threes and fours, I'm giving antibiotics. Now, the IDSA says only if it's strep. I've argued with them. I haven't won the argument yet, but I'm working on it. Uh, and so, and so in this population, the threes and the fours, you're saying are, it is a test for bacterial pharyngitis, that's right. group A strep, group C strep, and the dreaded fusobacterium that actually might be the most common and the most likely to cause this life-threatening complication, Lemire syndrome. At, at least in, in our college health clinic, that, that was true. And the range of positivity increases from zero to one to two to three to four for all three of those bacteria. Now, I didn't mention Arcanobacter because it's sort of a, a weird one with, with, it does have a rash, but it's very unusual. So that's part of the differential. Then we always have to think about infectious mono, especially in the college age or uh, high school age. And that's where posterior adenopathy might help you. You have to realize that people can have both infectious mono and bacterial infection. And I, when I was in college, I actually had mono and group A strep at the same time. Mm. So just because you, you do a mono test doesn't mean you can't think about them not having a bacteria. So in, in your expert opinion, say you have these patients who are now centers three, three and four criteria. They have, from what you, you know, they have a higher likelihood of likely having one of these bacteria. What, what is your next steps? Are you testing for all of them? Are you testing for a couple? Are you yeah. saying, you know what, you're high risk. I'm just going to treat you because I know I have to treat you. Yeah. What, I, what, what is your next step now? I just treat them. I treat them with a penicillin if, if they're not allergic to penicillin. If they look really sick and they're scared to take a penicillin or cephalosporin, and I don't have as good data with cephalosporins as I do with penicillin, I resort to clindamycin if they're really sick. We'll, we'll get into the rest of the differential in a second, but what the most important thing you can learn is what the red flags are. So these are the questions you should ask and you should consider about whether you should be really worried. Rigors. So it turns out that about 90% of the people who have Lemire syndrome have Rigors because Rigors has a very high likelihood ratio for bacteremia. And, and that's really what Lemire is, is bacteremia. Unilateral neck swelling. You shouldn't have unilateral neck swelling. That's either peritonsal abscess or that's internal jugular thrombophobitis. They need a CT of the neck. Shortness of breath, you know, pulmonary symptoms. But, but those two, rigors and unilateral neck swelling, are the ones that should make you worry the most. The, the other is that, they're, that they've gone five or six days and they haven't gotten better. Like I said, almost everybody gets better in three to five days. You don't need antibiotics to get better in three to five days. You get better faster with antibiotics if you're a three and four. Probably not for the zeros, ones, and twos because you're not that sick. So, Justin, you, were, you already talked about how sick you were when you had group A strep. How old were you? This was my third year of residency. Yeah. 
Okay, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you were sick as a dog. And you're not That's a drama king. I wasn't. I thought it was the man flu, but it was... It, yeah, no, this, this is not the man flu. This is, this is really serious. We always yeah. think that, that teenagers and college students are drama kings and drama queens, and they're, they're, they're just complaining too much. No, they're actually really sicker. So if they're really sick, I'm really happy to, to go ahead and give them antibiotics. Now, I have to think about infectious mono. If things seem like it's mono and the mono is negative, you have to think about, could this be acute HIV? You don't want to miss acute HIV in these patients because it is, it is so treatable. And so you, you, need, you do need to take a college student, high school student, you need to take a sexual history. If, if it looks like mono and the mono tests are negative, that, that remains in your differential. And then if it has lasted for a week or two weeks, then you have the whole big differential again. Could this be uh, Stills disease? Could this be acute leukemia? You have to think of a lot of different things. But for the, for the real acute bacterial, the real acute pharyngitis, the, the, they've been sick for two to three days with a high score, I would lean towards antibiotics. The, some of my colleagues say, well, don't give them penicillin, but if they get worse, give them penicillin. And I've just seen and read too many stories about people who the fir first sign that they had Lemaire syndrome was that they were going to the ICU with a pulmonary, septic pulmonary emboli. It's, a, it's, it's debatable. And Jeff Linder and I actually debated this on a podcast on Annals on Call, if somebody wants to get into the nitty gritty of that debate. I believe... As far as treating Lemire's disease, it's you still have decent coverage with penicillin. Is that correct? But the guidelines for anticoagulation are a little more controversial. Can you shed some light on that? There are no guidelines for Lemire's. There it is. I was hoping to go to the Anaerobe Society this summer in July. In they know how to have a party. Seattle. <laughs> uh, everyone's short of breath because there's no oxygen around. But... Seriously, uh, I was supposed to give a talk on Fusobacterium there, and one of the things I wanted to do is get them to convene a guideline. This is what we know. We know that in two recent large studies, because I did go to the European Anaerobe Society meeting and talk last summer, and in a study from England and a study from Sweden, virtually all Fusobacterium necrophorum is sensitive to penicillin. What most people are doing in the hospital now is using Piptazo because it's really good against uh, anaerobes, but they don't need they don't need anything other than Piptazo. Some people will give penicillin and metronidazole. Some people will just give clindamycin. Some people have treated just with high dose penicillin and gotten good results. Don't know about that. Do you need to anticoagulate them? They have a clot in the neck. It's so unclear. It's so unclear. I've treated. Uh, a patient who had incomplete uh, clot in the neck with just antibiotics, and after three days, they didn't have a clot in the neck and they didn't have a septic emboli. So my anecdotal experience is you don't necessarily need to give anticoagulation. Everybody gets nervous. The, the big problem with Lemaire syndrome is nobody has a lot of experience. It is a rare disease. The best estimate that we have from Denmark is it occurs in about one in 70,000 in the 16 to 30 age group per year, one in 70,000. So if you're at a large university, maybe every other year, or really large university, I guess Ohio State might have 70,000 people. 
you might see one on average one case per year. So it's rare, but it's not ridiculously rare. But no one person generally gets to take care of but so many of these patients. And it's almost impossible to put together a uh, series or a study to try to figure out those questions. I can't say you're wrong if you anticoagulate. I can't say you're right. And though it's true, I feel like you have a paper that I remember, I think that compared that while it's rare, it's still less rare than acute rheumatic yeah, uh, yeah. fever. And um, Talk to anybody uh, who's in the practice of infectious disease, and they've all seen Lemaire's, and many of them have not seen acute rheumatic fever, especially in this age group. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it in your adolescence, this this is the complication that dominates everything. So just to close out the differential in the adolescence, maybe as a recap, you want to be suspicious of group A strep, group C strep, fusobacterium with Lemaire's, but also want to make sure you're not missing mono, that you don't want to miss acute HIV or acute leukemia. I forget if we talk, throat gonorrhea is another possible cause. So let me say a word about gonorrhea. Gonorrhea definitely lives in the throat, and we know how it gets there. It rarely, it rarely <laughs> causes pharyngitis. Fair enough. But if you have it in the throat, it's more likely to cause septicemia, hmm. even without pharyngitis. It's a good pearl. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, for these patients who come in with viral pharyngitis, who are still miserable, uh, do you have treatment recommendations? I don't know that they would just appreciate my explaining how the McKissick score was formed. And if we can't do steroids, should we be doing throat lozenges, ibuprofen, Tylenol, yeah, opioids? You know, what's the... I think throat lozenges and either nonsteroidals or acetaminophen Fair enough. should help. And, and, that, and if they really have a score of one, they're going to get better in a few days. I mean, they, they're going to be somewhat miserable. Some people with mono that is lingering will get, will give uh, a, a course of uh, steroids. I forgot to answer one question. Can I, can I send off tests for group A, group C, and fusobacterium? There are a few companies that actually will do a PCR for all of those for you for a whole lot of money. And then you're going to get it back 24 to 48 hours later. I think don't know that it's worth the money. You can't, it's very hard to culture fusobacterium necrophorum because it's an anaerobe and very few of our labs are set up. In Denmark, they actually do, the, they do anaerobic throat cultures. And so they, they can, they've reported quite a bit of information on this. But I think that right now, until a rapid test comes around for fusobacterium, we really sort of have to go empiric. So I have a question for Justin, actually. Justin, in your pediatric clinic, when you're explaining to a mom or maybe a teen or adolescent on, they're going to ask the same question you just did. They're going to ask, how can I feel better? Do you routinely recommend any other types of homeopathic or other types of things besides throat lozenges? Do you talk about, talk to them about gargling salt water? Do you talk to them about a variety of other things? What do you do in your personal practice? I'm always curious what other people do. So I definitely provide a lot of reassurance and be like, I know that they're sick. Like saying that this is a virus does not mean that your kid is not miserable. Your kid is sick. So I try to build up non-steroidals. I try to build up throat lozenges a lot. I'll, sometimes if they bring up saltwater gargling, I'll support it. And I want to say there's even a study that if you do it like five times a day, it reduces symptoms slightly for yeah, that's might what, be a common problem. That's what my mother said. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, from Bob Sinter's mom. Journal of Mother Medicine. Uh, yes. But 
I try not to encourage anything other than what I feel is strong, but a lot of reassurance. Do you ever uh, use the, the phrase, here's the good news. You don't have to take antibiotics with all their complications. <laughs> I should. I, 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 I don't. Line. I'm going to steal it. Yeah. Uncle Bob, what are, what are the big takeaway points for, for pediatricians and med peace people that are listening to, to this podcast? What, what are the big takeaways? Don't use the same strategies with adolescents that you do with pre-adolescents. That's number one. Because they have a whole set of infections that pre-adolescents don't get. Group C is real. Fused bacterium is real. Infectious mono is real. Acute HIV is real. Number two, if it's an adolescent and they call you and they're not getting better, find out if they're having drenching sweats or rigors and those should scare the heck out of you, and they need to be admitted, put on IV antibiotics while you're trying to figure out what's going on. And number three, don't test or treat people who have low Centaur or McIsaac scores because you're wasting money and you're giving antibiotics to people who absolutely don't need them. And that's not good for anyone. Awesome. Excellent. Thanks, Uncle Bob. Yeah, thanks Great so much. You. Hope, hope to catch you at the next conference, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hope we have a conference one of these days. Yeah, one day. We will. We will. All yeah. right. Thanks, Bob. Bye. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list known as Knowledge Food formula feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox yummy (laughs) we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and weight-based dosings of fun to do that we need your feedback so please subscribe rate and review the show on apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com special thanks to our assistant producer for this episode becca raymond kolker thank you guys for joining us tonight i've been justin lee burke I've been Becca Raymond Kolker. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode. <laughs>